0: You're listening to The Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 18th of January 2024 on Monocle Radio.
1: Pakistan strikes back at Iran. The US presidential primary season gets properly rolling and is a potato, a vegetable. I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Alex von Tunzelman and Enrico Franceschini will discuss the day's big stories, and this week's letter from is a letter from Helsinki. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller, and I am joined today by Alex von Tonzeman, historian, author and screenwriter, and by Enrico Franceschini, London correspondent for La Repubblica. Hello to you both. Hello. Hello. Um, Imminent travel plans for both of you. Um, Enrico, it's possibly less exciting for you than it would be for most people, but you're going to Rome. Yes, I'm going to Rome, going to uh, spend uh, a
2: day or two with my colleagues at my newspaper, Probably eating some good
1: uh, Roman food uh, and uh, so looking for it too. Do you have a particular thing you like to do in Rome when you go there?
2: Uh, well, you know, I I love the, the tourist spots like <laughs> Pantheon <laughs> Square, very banal, the typical things like that. But uh, actually, uh, the office of my newspaper is in a, a particular uh, neighborhood, not mm-hmm. central Rome, not touristic zone, called Garbatella, full of uh, fans of Rome football club, but uh, very beautiful from an architectonic point of view. It was built by Benito Mussolini,
1: by fascists. It's the only good thing that fascists (laughs) did. (laughs) Uh, uh, Yeah, already we're at the Benito Mussolini. You did not, in any circumstances, got a hand to him. Um, (laughs) Alex, uh, you uh, can talk about future travel plans and also shamelessly plug one of your own ventures.
0: Indeed, I'm off soon to Morocco uh, for my my writing masterclasses I run with the company Silk Road Slippers. We've got some lovely guest authors. This time we've got Clover Stroud who's a wonderful memoirist, lifestyle writer and Monica Raleigh, who wrote Brick Lane coming with us. So it should be lots of fun. Do,
1: do you never get clamour from potential customers who want tips on how to write obtuse historiographies of Australian rules football?
0: Andrew, you know you can come anytime.
1: Because I could, I, I could,
0: hel- <laughs> I could help them uh, with that. Uh, but
1: we will start the show proper with the most recent consequences of the fight displayed in recent days by Iran. Not content with wreaking various torments via their proxies in Lebanon and Yemen and arguably Gaza, Iran itself has within the last week or so bombed three of its neighbours and nearish neighbours, launching ballistic missiles at the Kurdish region of Iraq, the rebel held district of Idlib in Syria, and two bases belonging to a militant group in Pakistan. Pakistan, understandably miffed, has now launched a barrage at what it claimed were terrorist hideouts in the Iranian province of sistan Sistanbalukistan. Iranian authorities claim that nine people were killed. Um, Enrico, Iran perhaps shouldn't be surprised that Pakistan has had a pop back at them, but is Iran likely to be surprised? Uh, they should not be
2: surprised. We should all be surprised uh, uh, by the theater of this little uh, mini war between these two countries. You said, pronounce it correctly, Bal- Baluchistan. Mm-hmm. Uh, today, my newspaper asked me to write a, a little uh, story, a little explanation. First question was, where is Baluchistan? <laughs> <laughs> what it is, where it come from? It seemed very interesting because it, was, it proves that not only... Uh, you know, Kurdistan. There are, it's it's a people without a state. Mm-hmm. It's divided by three countries: Afghanistan, mm-hmm. Pakistan, and Iran. And uh, but uh, from what the expert says, it does not look like this is the beginning of a war between Iran and Pakistan over
1: Baluchistan. By the by, just a show of force. Well, indeed, it does not. Uh, fingers crossed, look like the beginnings of a war because Alex. Pakistan's missile barrage was accompanied by a a strangely emollient statement. They went to great pains to say that we fully respect Iran's sovereignty. Um, They just does seem to be this whole thing of we've launched a few missiles. It's nothing personal. Don't get too wound up. (laughs)
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, they don't want a war. Look, they've got there's a general election coming up in Pakistan in February. Um, it's a rather precarious point. So they couldn't not respond, I don't think. I think Mm. there had to be this response. But as you say, it's been couched in very interesting political terms. Clearly, nobody wants to kick off a war right now. Um, Balochistan has been a problem for a very long time, in Pakistan at least. You know, it's a place where there is a lot of... It's actually very hard to get journalists there, foreign journalists or Pakistani journalists. It's quite hard to get information out of it. Um, It's incredibly politically sensitive. But I think really the last thing that I can imagine the authorities or the military want is for that to kick off right now.
1: Well, you would hope so. And I, for one, did enjoy the Taliban calling for restraint. Uh, uh, that, that, yes. that, that, that's 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 always heartwarming. Um, <laughs> but, but Enrico, if we look at Iran's actions over the last week, yes. um, are these three actions that I mentioned in the introduction in Iraq, Syria and Pakistan, are these all things Iran has decided to do completely independently of each other or is there a coherent strategy behind this? Are they putting on some sort of a show? I think there
2: is a strategy. The strategy being that uh, they would like to hit actually Israel, but Mm. they don't dare to do that because of the consequences. From Israel and from the United States, though, so, so to show they are tough people, and that after the the big uh, uh, terrorist attack uh, uh, near the tomb of General Soleimani at uh, the beginning of January, where um, about hundred people died, um, that was done by ISIS uh, forces, uh, apparently um, they blame Israel that time too. But instead of hitting Israel, uh, so they they show the, to, to uh, show of strength. So, they hit uh, rebels and enemies uh, that cannot much answer in Syria and Iraq, and in this case, uh, is a a Sunni group, a Sunni Mm -hmm. militant anti-Shia group uh, in uh, Pakistan that they're here. And they said the same. We are not hitting Pakistani. We don't have anything against Pakistan. This is just against these rebels.
1: Um, the subtexts are interesting, Alex, and the the Iranians do seem to have said the quiet part out loud in terms of the bombing uh, on on this. These alleged ISIS bases in Idlib, there's some suggestion that, as is very often the case in, in such actions, the Iranians have blown up a bunch of empty buildings. But if it was against Islamic State, who did claim responsibility for those suicide bombings in Kerman on January the 3rd, which did kill at least 94 people... That's probably justifiable. I mean, any country, I think, if it thought it had a clear shot at the base of people who had perpetrated an attack like that would take it. But the Iranian Revolutionary Guards Council's own news agency said the attack was, and I quote, so the Islamic Republic of Iran could send a clear message to the leaders of the United States and the Zionist regime. So is this all about Iran demonstrating that, yes, we have missiles and we have drones and they work?
0: I mean, it's hard to see what else it could be about, actually, I think. And I think uh, Enrico's right. I think it is just a show of force that they can do. I mean, Pakistan, you know, is obviously not an ally of Israel. I mean, (laughs) you know, understatement of the evening there just come through. I mean, so, of course, it's not kind of linked remotely to that situation in that sense. I really do think it does come down to that. It comes down to a little bit of shaking the old rattling the sabre, you know, kind of just showing yes, we've got some stuff and we're not afraid to use our stuff. And it seems, I mean, from that angle, it does seem rather bizarre, but and yet this is the show of strength they've decided to go for. Uh,
1: Just finally on this, Enrico, you mentioned, uh, and I think quite rightly, that Iran's preferred target would, of course, be Israel. But Iran does understand that there would be consequences for that, which they would find disagreeable. But Mm -hmm. nevertheless, Is it possible, and it is always possible when you launch military actions, to misjudge the consequences because, as the saying goes, the enemy always gets a say, that Iran might misjudge everybody else's willingness to put up with much more of this? Uh, It's possible.
2: It's also possible that this is over. In the mm. sense, one, two, three—they uh, did a little show of force, and now they'll show more restraint and uh, and they'll uh, play by ear, see what happens. Uh, particularly in the on the border between Lebanon and Israel, between Hezbollah, which is supported and helped by Iran, as we know, and so that's where a, a real war could start, uh, if it if it happens. But there too, Hezbollah have shown restraint so far, uh, just. Their little show of force and not much, m- many words, not so much action because they are also afraid. Of course, Israel must be careful too because Hezbollah is not Hamas; it's much more armed and dangerous. Uh, and uh, but uh, it has not happened yet. Let's hope it
1: will not. Well, to the United States, where earlier this week the Republican Party began its quest to select a nominee for November's presidential election. The Iowa caucuses were a thumping victory for former president and current 91-count indicted Donald Trump. The Democratic Party begins, sort of, its process next Tuesday in New Hampshire. The Democrats didn't really do Iowa, and indeed they're not really doing New Hampshire. The party will launch its primary season proper in more representatively... Who would put a word like representatively in a radio script? I'm never doing that again. Diverse South Carolina on February 3rd, but miffed New Hampshire Democrats are staging some sort of thing. Um, Anyway, um, Alex, you cannot help but admire the democratic party's ability to stage an argument over absolutely nothing
0: it is exhausting <laughs> is it not <laughs> i mean i mean it
1: must be tiring for them is what i keep thinking
0: yes absolutely i mean it's kind of bizarre i mean they do seem to be in this, in this extraordinary place for facing this extraordinary challenge which i think a lot of people really think is terribly dangerous from trump you know mm. a, and a real threat of you know he's floated the idea, for instance, that he'll be a dictator, but only on day one. Oh, you know, those of us in Europe have heard this sort of talk before. You know, this is this is quite frightening. And then you've got them kind of piddling about the Democrats and not kind of forming a response to this. I mean, it's deeply frustrating. And I imagine even more so for Americans who are living through it. Um, yeah, I mean, it's sort of absurd. And it, it seem, we seem to be in a position where I think something that's quite interesting going into this election is... I, In a sense, we're not really seeing the fullness of it yet. I think a lot of Americans aren't yet fully engaging with it. You Mm. know, these are the early days. We don't yet have confirmed candidates, although it seems very obvious it will be Trump on the Mm. Republican side. But, you know, that isn't yet official um, and people aren't kind of fully engaged with that. Um, But, I mean, both potential candidates, Trump and Biden, both have approval ratings that are really underwater. Yes. Um, So there isn't a sort of obvious enthusiasm actually kind of a burning fire under either side, apart from sort of rather small bases.
1: Uh, We will come back to that. But I I just want to ask Enrico about the optics of deciding to properly launch uh, primary season for the Democrats in South Carolina. Uh, The reasoning is that New Hampshire, delightful, though it doubtless is, is not really a microcosm of America entire, whereas South Carolina is a bit more like it. Um, Does it really matter, though? It doesn't
2: in a season like like this, like this year, when uh, there are no opponents to the uh, nomination for Joe Biden. Not serious, not ones, serious ones. ones anyway. uh, nobody can can do that. I mean, uh, someone can argue that Trump has an easy way to the nomination, but there can be still surprises down there. I mean, I, 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 when I was in the States, I followed three presidential campaigns, and uh, it's a bit early to say it's done, because <laughs> something usually happens. Why it happens also? Because the big uh, news, the media, and now the social media, uh, they consider it also a show, and a show, a boring show never sells. So, something usually happens of a kind of another. Anyway, for the Democrats, it doesn't make any differences, as you were saying, and and they might have offended the people of New Hampshire, saying you don't count, but. On the other hand, they know that when the real election will come on November 4th, New Hampshire will fall on the Democrats' side, as has always done. So they don't risk much over
1: there. I mean, Alex, it's not a prospect that we should engage with for very long, because clearly there probably isn't going to be a serious primary challenge to President Biden. But I I did look this up. Uh, A few presidents who arrived in the White House, because they were originally vice president, have subsequently been denied the nomination of their own party. John Tyler, Millard, Fillmore, mm. Andrew Johnson, Chester Arthur. Only one incumbent elected president has ever been refused the nomination by his own party. Call yourself a historian. Can you name him?
0: Oh, my God. No,
1: who is it? It was Franklin Pierce in 1856.
0: God, that would have taken me all day. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Um, So it's probably not going to happen. But as you point out, um, Alex, Joe Biden's numbers are sub-great. He Mm. has an approval rating of 39% or thereabouts, disapproval rating of 56%. Now, if you look at the bare numbers... The economy on his watch has done quite well. Uh, He has managed a series of foreign policy crises, I think, quite calmly and competently. And yet, and I should add, he is running against a mentally ill con man facing 91 felony charges, and he is still not a lock. Why not?
0: It's extraordinary, isn't it? I find it quite surprising, actually, because I do, I agree with you. I actually think he's been really a rather successful president. Mm. I mean, actually, in many ways, particularly the economy and the handling world, certainly of Ukraine. I think there's more criticism possibly legitimately over the Israel-Gaza situation. But I do think he's been coherent on it, Mm. you know, from his point of view, even if people haven't always agreed with him. Um, And I mean, it's, it's kind of bizarre, but this tells you something about where America is politically. And perhaps we then come back to Enrico's comment about it has to be a good show. And there's clearly a bit of a problem with that going on. It's not a very good, you know, all these boring things like, oh, you know, it's the economy's recovered and uh, people have got jobs again. Oh, boring, boring. What about the uh, bring on the reality TV president who says the shocking things in all the trials these days? I mean, it, you know, is it just that there's this sort of hunger for content um, and for something exciting? I mean, you know, it, it does seem kind of confusing, but perhaps this just tells you something about the kind of where America culturally is.
1: I mean, going back to your experience, which you alluded to earlier, Enrico, of having covered presidential campaigns uh, in the United States, are you surprised that it has degenerated to this, as Alex suggests, that it is now literally a reality TV show? Did the, did the two great parties kind of set themselves up for this by turning their campaigns uh, into such circuses with all their flags and hats and banners and so forth?
2: Well, one can argue that Trump made it more of a circus, of mm. course. But to a certain extent, it has always been like that. I mean, they used to say that uh, John Kennedy won the debate against Nixon uh, in 1960 because Nixon didn't shave himself properly and it was the first time a debate on TV and he looked like someone who, who just got out of jail, you know. Mm. And he, didn't right. look,
0: he, was, he refused <laughs> to wear stage makeup as well. So exactly. Kennedy looked all smooth and Nixon sweated a lot.
2: But on the other hand, we also must remember, it is a show, but it's also a show of democracy, a fight for the biggest uh democratic country in the world, the leader of the democratic world. And, uh, and so it's not only, you know, um, uh, dancing or making jokes. In the end, uh, the wallet counts. Uh, American also wat- vote with their wallet, and let's hope they will remember uh, this time. But it's also true that Biden, maybe his problem is a bit boring, it's his felt too old, and he has uh, this, this serious problem right now.
1: Well, just a, a final thought on that, Alex, and it is a thing that is being said about Joe Biden that he he is too old and he is too frail to do what is you would think, a fairly stressful job. And and obviously, that's not an unreasonable thing to tag Joe Biden with. He is quite old and clearly quite frail, but he's not actually that much older than his opponent, uh, who does not cop the same criticism.
0: Well, and I think that's going to be quite interesting because I think there's a little bit of an effect going on where Trump, of course, having been banned from Twitter, as was, I think he's now allowed back on X, but hasn't really gone back on it, hasn't been sort of necessarily on the kind of major media channels quite so much, until, you know, of course, it will start again very soon. Um, and what a lot of people seem to be observing, and I think it's going to be quite interesting to see, is that actually he really is talking more chaotically now. I think there's hmm. probably been a cognitive decline in the last three years. And I'm not sure people are quite aware of that. And it's going to be, you know, of course, he's avoiding things like the presidential debates at the moment and just talking to his fan base and all of yes. this. But he can't do that forever. And I think, you know, it seems to me there's been a lot of focus on Joe Biden's health. But I mean, you're talking about guys who are octogenarians, both of them. And of course, that is, and without remotely wishing anything awful on anyone, that is also one of the potential upsets in this race. You have two Mm. really quite elderly candidates. And, you know, a lot can happen.
1: Well, to news now from the dystopia beat and one of Japan's most prestigious literary prizes has been won by a novel partially composed using AI chatbot, ChatGPT. Ri Kudan, newly anointed laureate of the Akutagawa Prize reckons that around 5% of her much-ballyhooed book The Tokyo Tower of Sympathy is AI-generated although in her defence the book is set in an imagined near future in which AI has become very much a thing. Uh, Enrico, a near future in which we will all shortly, doubtless, be living. Um, We're all writers at this table of one sort or another. How much should we hate this? I think we should not
2: hate it. Oh, come on. Yes,
1: I think think (laughs) in this particular instance,
2: this Japanese writer was quite clever. I mean, a novel about artificial intelligence written only 5% by a, a robot, but obviously... I mean, the robot didn't have the last word, so she, she checked the materials, she did the final editing, so she was on top of it. And I think it, it, it's a nice, it's catchy, probably make people talk about it. Even on the radio in London.
1: (laughs) Uh, Well, indeed. Um, Alex, this is obviously accelerating quickly and clearly remarkable in one way or another. Things are going to happen with AI in the next few years. Do we get to a point, though, at which we can or should appreciate anything it may create as actual art or indeed actual journalism or indeed actual history?
0: Well, so far, it does seem to have a pretty big problem with differentiating fact from fiction or indeed with just fully... Well, that can't possibly go go wrong. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I think it's going pretty wrong on the journalism front and all of that and the uh, factual claims front. Um, And I also think there is a huge roadblock in the way of it in terms of the copyright questions around it, which are extremely unresolved. I mean, obviously, there's currently a lawsuit in the US Mm -hmm. with lots of very big name authors, people like John Grisham, George RR Martin and so forth. Um, I think there's 17 of them ringing OpenAI. The New New York
2: Times as well. Yes,
0: exactly. The New York Times also having a lawsuit. You know, these are quite big questions. And I think that's one that sort of concerns me as a writer is that is like, you know, whatever you think of the output end, the input end is a problem here. And if you think back, for instance, in the music industry, which, of course, you're very familiar with to Mm. stuff like the Napster question, what stopped a lot of that was the legal aspect. It wasn't that the law changed to allow that to happen. Actually the law stayed where it was and the industry moved around and, you know, Apple then launched the iPod allowing you to pay a dollar for a song and suddenly there was a way to pay for music. And, you know, so actually there was an adaptation. It wasn't accommodated. There was this idea that all of those, you know, the industry was going to be completely shaken up by file sharing and was going to have to adapt copyright and it didn't. Copyright law did get enforced. So I don't think we should underrate what could happen here in terms of, you know, AI actually having to pay for what it has used.
1: Mm. But Enrico, what about the works in themselves? Can you imagine yourself ever sitting down and reading an entirely AI-generated novel?
2: Well, entirely novel is difficult to imagine. Maybe an entire article visible on certain subjects particularly uh, or, or, you know, uh, maybe not a novel but uh, a, a chapter or a synthesis of a novel, a summary of a novel when you want just to get uh, you know what it is about. Uh, I still think that uh, um, the human brain, the human hand is is different uh, there and uh, but i I imagine that it it, it can be confused. I imagine hmm. that it's possible to uh, not to see the difference I mean not everybody would see the difference right away in a, even in a novel uh, they'd say, oh, this is written a bit uh, strange, but some authors also write in a very strange <laughs> if
1: not to say weird way. So yeah, I, I, I have editors who would wearily confirm that, but, but, <laughs> but, but on that thought, Alex, genuinely how far do you think we are from the point at which some random Yahoo might think what I would like to read is, for example, an obtuse historiography of Australian rules football, but written in the style of Alex von Tunzelman and Can just type that into ChatGPT or something similar and have it delivered straight to them?
0: Well, as I say, it depends. The lawyers may intervene before they can get (laughs) to that stage. Um, But I mean, no, it's, I mean, The tech has obviously progressed very, very fast. But yes, as I say, I don't think the tech is the only question here. I do think it's also about how that accommodates in the society. And also, you know, I just do come back to thinking, why have you done this? People want to write novels or create art. You know, for God's sake, just create one that does my tax return. (laughs) But just to go back
1: finally on this, Enrico, to your point, is the worry not that what we have learnt from the internet, and Alex was quite right to cite the precedent of... um, the music business but we've seen it from the internet entirely the fact that what used to be this kind of like you know vast extraordinary wilderness all gets absorbed into three or four social media platforms just because that's easier the fact is if you make something that's free and easy even if it's not as good that's what's going to attract the eyeballs exactly
2: so it's it's possible that this will be successful and we don't know where it ends legal points are important of course. At the same time, we should, I feel, we should not be afraid of the future and and of innovation. There was a big uh, debate at first, uh, if uh, uh, to use fire to cook uh, meat or to keep eating it through. (laughs) And then they decided, well, fire is dangerous. It's very dangerous. You know, we are creating something. We don't know where it will end up with this. But in the end, it wasn't that bad.
1: Well, back to the United States, where bad news may be looming, for those Americans who have convinced themselves that a fistful of french fries counts as one of their five a day. Boffins at the US Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee are pondering whether to reclassify the potato as something other than a vegetable. Though Americans do eat potatoes by the skipful, nearly 23 kilos of spuds per person per year, they mostly consume them in unhealthy forms. The thinking is that deciding potatoes are not vegetables would lessen their presence in school lunches which are governed by food group requirements we will hear at this time from an american who likes potatoes
3: every diet i've ever fell off of has been because of a potato either french fries or mashed potatoes or baked potatoes potato 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 i never met a spud i didn't like
1: There is absolutely no need to back announce that voice, is there? Everybody knows who that was. Um, Alex, first of all, do you have a view on potatoes generally?
0: Well, I'm with Dolly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, Yeah, I mean, I think I'm pretty pro the potato. And I think I I understand what they're saying here, Mm. which is that, yes, you know, you don't necessarily want people thinking that French fries are somehow health food now. But um, it does seem to me that the problem is less with the humble potato than with the way it is then being cooked and things that are being added to it and deep mm-hmm. frying and this kind of thing. The potato itself is not actually the villain here. Um, so <laughs> yes. you know, so I think I think the blame might be being a, put. A, a, a phrase not. that
1: has possibly never been before uttered in the history of broadcasting. <laughs> the potato itself is not the villain here. Um, Enrico, is this? Is this a bit try hard by the U.S. Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee? Is it fundamentally the case that governments can't really stop eating people from eating garbage? Can they? <laughs> well, people do love, um, you know, junk food. We know mm. that, and
2: uh, it's true that is the way potatoes are cooked. Is that that's the problem? So it's not only Americans. I remember um, fondly I have a love for potatoes from my years in Russia because. I remember at the time of Gorbachev when there was nothing to eat, how important it was for the average Russian to have a little piece of land where they could grow their own kartoshka, their own mm. potatoes, and eat only that, basically. And speaking of Russia and eating and how to call things, a correspondent, a colleague of mine, uh, said, I, I started to eat... Uh, Cuc- cucumbers in mm-hmm. Russia because it was, the, in the in the 70s, it was the only green thing
1: <laughs> <And>, uh, <laughs> not having salads anymore. I said, okay,
2: let's eat lots of
1: cucumbers. Uh, Alex, I am looking forward to this story becoming a massive culture war issue in, in the election. And you can see how it's going to go. Democrats want to ban French fries.
0: Yes, absolutely. well, this has already happened over steak and red meat, of course. There's been the scare story the, the left want to ban steak um, <laughs> and red meat, which I'm pretty sure nobody does, outside possibly a few others there's always a few cranks somewhere, but, uh, but I don't think anyone is really seriously going for that and you know, at which point you get lots of people kind of clutching their steaks and saying, you know, you will pry it from my cold dead hands mm. and this sort of thing. I mean yes, I'm sure we'll get into all sorts of culture war fun over this, but I think realistically the potato is you know, a kind of such a staple food all over the world now, I mean, and certainly having been, you know, fairly recently in Peru, where they eat huge amounts of potatoes, of course potatoes, from south america originally mm-hmm. um and they're all fabulously fit and healthy because they cook properly good home food they walk lots and they live at high altitudes and all of that will very much keep you slim so i'm not sure the potato again i'm going to say the potato is not a villain i'm going to just repeat that point because that's it <laughs> it's, a big, it's a it's hero a well it, it, it
1: does cue us up to try and end on a slightly heartwarming and upbeat note and i was going to ask you both in turn enrico you first potatoes aside do you have a particular vegetable uh,
2: aubergine
1: aubergine <laughs> yes that, that, is, that is a yes. niche pick
2: <laughs> uh, well you know parmesan they say it's very good uh, mm-hmm. Melanzane alla parmigiana as we say in italian aubergine parmesan
1: aubergine interesting yeah. alex
0: I'm going to sound like such a swat, but I really love broccoli. I was going to say broccoli. <laughs> I literally was going to say
1: broccoli. So are right. you. There you go. It's fantastic. Lovely. Broccoli. Let's hear it for broccoli. Today's show has been brought to you by broccoli. This is like being on Sesame Street. I've always (laughs) wanted to say that. Alex von Tunderman and Enrico Franceschini, thank you both for joining us. Finally, on today's show, our now global Letter From franchise comes to you this week from Helsinki, where Petri Bertsov has some timely views on
3: insulating oneself from winter. Everyone knows that winters in Finland are long, dark and cold, but until you move here, you won't grasp just how long dark and cold they are. I became painfully aware of this the other day when I ventured out of my apartment in central Helsinki and my eyebrows froze together and I was not able to open my eyes. It was minus 26 degrees Celsius, but according to the snazzy weather app on my phone, which takes into account the effect of both the wind and humidity, it felt like minus 40. That's cold. Really, really cold. Arctic cold. When you live in Finland long enough, you become either a winter person or a summer person. You can't be both and it's quite easy to spot which category people here in Helsinki belong to. There are those who only venture outside in wintertime for brief periods of time, sporting jeans or yoga pants with sneakers, and then a thick full-length down coat, which essentially looks like a tent on the top. It keeps you warm for that five-minute walk between your warm home and your warm office, but it's not practical nor stylish. They are summer persons. Winter, for them, is about survival. They rejoice on the 23rd of December, the day after the winter solstice, when each day brings with it a minute or two more of daylight. I'm not joking, I've seen people hosting parties to celebrate this. Winter persons are just as easy to spot. Some weeks ago, a guy arrived at one of Helsinki's trendy bars on skis. He neatly folded them together and laid them against the wall by the entrance before he ordered a Negroni Spagliato, a winter person. On my walks in the freezing cold Helsinki, I've spotted people swimming in the frozen Baltic Sea and long-distance ice skating, not in the neatly made ice rinks that you find even in London or New York, but on the sea ice, between Helsinki and Stockholm. Some people put studded winter tires on their bikes and cycle to work in the freezing cold. Yes, winter persons. I always thought I was a summer person. I spent my childhood and teenage years in Finland, but moved to warmer climes soon after. I spent most of my adult life living in places that didn't have snow, places like East Africa, the US West Coast and Italy. When I moved from Rome back to Helsinki a few years ago, it was December and the temperature difference was almost 40 degrees. My friends thought I would last a year tops. But here I am, still. I'm writing this letter wearing thermal underwear after having taken my kids to daycare on a sledge. Last weekend, I drove my car to a shopping mall parking garage for an hour so that it would melt. I didn't buy anything, just had coffee. Every parking space, was filled with cars with frozen windows and a half a meter thick layer of snow on top of them. They were all there for the same reason. Does this mean that I have become a winter person? No, but I have learned to adapt and to make the most of it. Adapting to the cold is easy. You just put more clothes on, or better clothes to be more precise. My friend just told me that he bought a USB chargeable heating vest that he wears underneath his coat. There's a sticker in my long johns, which claims that you can wear them at minus 30. I wonder if that means you don't need to wear anything else. What gets me, though, is the lack of light. This winter, there have been entire weeks in Helsinki when you don't see the sun at all. And there are only five hours of daylight during the day. This means it is pitch dark when you go to work and pitch dark when you leave the office. But as you might have guessed, the locals have found a way to cope. They have lamps that simulate sunlight. There's a whole science behind these lamps, I've learned. When your standard indoor lights reach around 500 lux in brightness, these lamps can go up to 10,000 lux. They are also programmed to have the same color temperature as the sun. I have one of those lamps next to my monitor as I'm writing this. Who needs Bali when you have Philips? <sighs> But the one thing that us Finns who are not winter persons can't change is the duration of the winter. There's a joke which says that Finland has two distinct seasons winter and July. That's not quite true, but it is t shirt weather only in June, July, and August. You might ask then why is Finland the world's happiest country year after year? I don't know the answer to that question. A summer person might say that it is all about appreciating nice things in life when you have them only momentarily. I bet Australians don't use terms like t-shirt weather. They just call it weather. But for us in Finland, the transformation from winter to summer is life-changing. For Monaco in Helsinki, I'm Petri Burtsov.
1: Thank you, Petri. And that is all for this edition of The Daily. Thanks to our panellists today, Alex von Tonselman and Enrico Franceschini. Today's show was produced by Isabella Jewell and researched by Neoma Ekwe. Our sound engineer was Sarah Nickel. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily is back at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening.